0: everyone and welcome back to epic tales from the sewers i am your host justin eric is off today so uh today i have a very special guest uh he is the author and i would say curator of the uh the book that came out and um it is all about the ninja turtles line of uh action figures and just like the lore in the history it's called rad plastic and with me today is the is the author mr chris Fawcett. how are you doing chris hi how are you today wonderful um, I, I first ran across this book, maybe, I don't know, how, how long has this been out? Since, since 2020?
1: Um, the first shipping was early 2021. Or um,
0: 2021, okay.
1: Yeah, I started taking pre-orders in 2020, like mid-year in June, but they, the first copies shipped, uh, I think was like January 2021.
0: A uh, friend and co-host of uh, my other podcast, uh, Matt from from the Dual Finds, got a copy of this book, and I was incredibly envious going through this thing. Just looking through it, it's it's amazing. You know, it, it's uh, what what would you call it? Like a prestige format, sort of coffee table book esque. Um, yes, it's archive. definitely going yeah.
1: for the, I was definitely going for the something fit for the coffee table for sure. It's, you know, it's, it's quite large. The comment I get most from people, honestly, when they people email me or ping me on social media, like, I didn't realize it would be so big. That's like the, the number one comment I get. Oh, it's humongous. It's like 11 by 11 and about four pounds or five pounds or so. So it's hefty.
0: Yeah, it's it's substantial. And in, in the uh, the cover of the book, for anyone who, who hasn't seen it yet, is a, uh, a view of the turtle's party wagon. And it has a big logo with half shell, half sewer, and it says rad plastic on it with uh, two turtles that are, are in the driver's seat. Now, are they open to interpretation or do you have an idea of who those turtle shadows are? I, actually, I never thought about that. But, oh, nice. Okay,
1: but but I'll make it up right now.
0: Yeah, so who, who do you want them to my, be?
1: My favorite two are Leo and Donnie. So that, I love now it. they are officially Leo and Donnie in the
0: windows. Oh, you're the best. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge Leo guy. Leo is everything that I aspire to be, and unfortunately, am not. But <laughs> <laughs> you know that's that's my deal. So that's that's great. And now now we know canonically the, who they are. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that that kind of matches the igloo cooler that I have. I think. <laughs> Yeah, man, this is, this is great. Like uh, it's, it's kind of an archive of the history of the process. And I mean, the amount of research you must've done on this is just staggering. How, um how long did this process take to go through this book? Uh,
1: well, the, I started basically the tail end of 2017. So all of 2018 and all of 2019, I was researching. And then 2020 was, was sort of a combination of some, a little bit of researching ongoing, but then also really working with the designer and doing the writing and getting all that stuff ready for it to actually go to print, which it went to print in like, mm. uh, I think it was like late summer 21. So by the time it, by the time I sent the book off to the printers, it had probably been pretty close to three years. Oh, is that right? 17, 19. Mm. Yeah. About, about three years, because I sent it off in, in late late summer 2020. I think I just misspoke. It was late summer 2020 that I sent it off. So about three years of research and writing and designing and editing and all that stuff until it was out of my hands at the printers.
0: So what's what's the process? Or actually, I should what's your history like with Ninja Turtles? Like, how did you first get into them and like the action figures and, and just like in general?
1: Well, actually, I was never really into the toys. Um, I'm a little bit older than that generation, but my initial sort of foray in love with them was the original stand-up four-player arcade game. Yes. Uh, because <laughs> I, I played a lot of video games when I was in high school and college and that was one that it was, it was in the student center when I was like a freshman in college and so I played that one a lot. So that was kind of my entry to it and then I don't know I was always kind of a kid at heart and even even in college when I'd come home afternoon and work on homework I'd always turn on the afternoon cartoons on you know like back back in those days at like three o'clock in the afternoon cartoons came on television oh yeah and uh so I would uh flip those on and watch like Darkwing Duck and yes <laughs> uh,
0: Turtles uh, was on at uh I'm Turtles from Connecticut on. It was always mm. on at five after Disney Afternoon, so after right. like Tailspin and Darkwing and all that kind of stuff. It was right. Like,
1: so yeah. sometimes I would lapse over into that and catch a few of those here and there, but I never really, I you know, I was a bit too old to be like the uh, having toys as as a plaything. Um, but as I got older, I started being a toy collector, mostly foray into Star Wars originally because that was really the toys from my childhood. But then got into the Ninja Turtles toys too, as as well. Just because I did love I did love the property. I was starting to find a bunch of interesting things and sort of um, sort of fell in love with the toys much much later than my fandom for the for the the property in general.
0: You you're a Star Wars guy. I, I'm really surprised that they never made a Star Wars version of the figures because they had the concepts from, from artist Michael Dooney. And it seems like that would have been not something that would have been out of the realm of possibilities back then during Turtle Mania. Did you, um, did you ever run across any, any ideas that they were going to actually produce those? Or?
1: Well, uh, it's, this is a little bit of piecing together stories from different people and a little bit of speculation. But I'll tell you what I, I think happened was around about 1994, um, Lucasfilm was pitching the license out to other toy companies for Star Wars. And Playmates was one of those toy companies. And actually, we, in the research for the book, stumbled across a lot of the Playmates concept pieces for the pitch Star Wars line. And uh, what I heard, actually, is that Playmates had, by far, the most interesting and the best pitch. And they went up to Skywalker Ranch and literally, like, set up a whole room with with backdrops and displays and had all these prototypes and like they really knocked it out of the park as far as their pitch goes and ultimately what i heard was lucasfilm loved them and the toys but they were worried about such a small company taking on a big property and could they keep up with um you know the demand and all that which you know looking at it from my point of view as someone that used to be in the toy industry I was like man they just They just nailed turtles. How could you not think that they could keep up with Star Wars? But um, So eventually they did not get the property. My guess, and this is the speculation part, is that those turtle Star Wars crossover concepts were part of that pitch that they were saying, look, here's all the Star Wars toys we can do. And oh, by the way, we can do some cross branding with turtles and Star Wars. And when they didn't get the license for Star Wars, that whole thing fell by the wayside. Um, so that's my speculation. I guess it could be, the other way it could have happened is that they were just trying to get a license just for Star Wars tour Turtles at some point, maybe before that uh, pitch meeting. And, you know, it was just the licensing fees were too much or Lucasfilm one wasn't yeah. interested. I don't know. But I think the more likely story is those were somehow part of that that's pitched to get the Star Wars license that they did not win.
0: And they were still with Kenner back in that time. So, you know, I, uh, and it was funny, you know, it's, it just seemed like such an obvious trans, you know, like transfer where it's like, oh, yeah, this would be perfect if it happened. And, yeah. and we had the Star Trek ones, which are great, but it just <laughs> never kind of happened. Yeah. And,
1: yeah, um, you know, um, Playmates already had the license for Star Trek figures. So that was an easy one for them to, to get over the finish line from a business standpoint.
0: That makes sense because I, I remember, um, I think for one of my birthdays, I got a bebop and like a Geordie LaForge and they both had that playmates logo, you know, right. <laughs> it's the same yeah. birthday. I remember getting that. That's great. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of engineering that goes into this too. And, um, I was really interested by something you said in the first part of the book about how you credit a lot of this to Barbie and Barbie kind of led the way with like plastic and all that. Um, is there anything in, in your research, um, um, regarding like the engineering of the figures that's like, that's like you didn't realize was incredibly interesting or something like that, that maybe like the regular uh, fan or appreciator wouldn't know?
1: Well, um, you know, my background is a toy engineer. So uh, there, there wasn't anything sort so of- maybe that <laughs> <really> <laughs> really So maybe not. really surprised me about yeah. that. Um, because, you know, I, I really knew how toys were made, but from a fan's perspective, uh, someone that maybe doesn't, know the engineering behind toys and has never done that in their job. You know, I think probably some of the most interesting stuff is is just what I explained, I think, is in chapter two is the entire process that you have to go through to get from from a from a sketch on a paper to a toy on a store shelf. And I think probably the thing I hear sometimes is most people are surprised by it. when you tell them like, yeah, to take a toy to market is like a nine to 12 month process and their brain cannot wrap around like how could it possibly be that long? Because it's so but small. When you, and, yeah. yeah, it's like, but when you, when you look at it and you go through the steps and you go, okay, well, here's everything they have to do all along the way. You know, um, it's it's a pretty interesting, especially back in the day, it's a pretty interesting process of, it, it's very manual, it was, was very manual, you know, the, back before computer sculpting and even computer graphic design for packaging was it a thing, you know, it was a very manual process and it took a long time and uh, all these steps they had to go through. And all that's laid out in chapter two, which is what I really wanted to make sure that the casual fans sort of understood because the book is is chock full of these prototypes and different stages of the process uh, later on in the book. Really, the whole back half of the book is all about that. And if I didn't explain that up front, what all these things were, you'd just be looking at them and have no idea what part Mm -hmm. of the process this was you know, what, what's, what's interesting about a hard copy versus a sculpt versus a first shot versus whatever, you know, how are they different? Where do they fit into the process? So I really wanted to explain that to people in the first half, so they could really have a better appreciation for all the things that they're going to see as we get into the the back half of the book, which is split up by each individual year and showing interesting things for that year. So hopefully, um, you know, it's kind of hard as someone who is, Deep into the technical nature of it because it was my job for 15 years to try and write a chapter that the layman can understand. I don't, I hope I did well at that. It's kind of hard, you know, to reflect on that and look at it because you know what you're talking about and trying to explain it to somebody that doesn't know anything about it. Sometimes you can miss the mark and, and over explain or under explain. So hopefully, I've done a good enough job that once you read chapter two, you really have a better appreciation for everything else that comes later in the book and you're flipping pages going, Oh, wow. That, oh, I, know yeah, what that is. I know what process part of the process that is. I know like, Oh man, that's the thing the sculptor took his knife to. That's amazing. It's, it's like the, the very first one of this figure ever to come to life. And
0: so hopefully you recognize those things like that as you go through the back half. It, and I mean, like in, in terms of like a historical aspect, there there's things that you have in there and in, a, like uh, Leonardo starting out as you know um, having nunchucks or or being orange you know like like those tweaks or like Mm -hmm. the first prelim of uh, Rocksteady that looks way different than than the last one and and you see it you're like holy crap that's where this came from and now it's such a huge part of like the turtle zeitgeist and it's like that came from here and it's it's really interesting like for people who are interested in in the history of of all of this and the characters i think this book is an absolute must you know um, i'm hoping my library gets a copy actually out here because it's just one of those things where it's like it's so interesting if you're into this culture because of the little nuggets that you have and and i mean like concepts like scratch you know like like just the concept of that where it came from who did it you know uh, jim lawson did this one and and michael dooney did this one it's it's just kind of like it hits on those notes where it's like i'm not a huge collector of the toys anymore but like i still get a couple but um you know it's like i know people who live and die by these things and by the accessories it like with the aftermarket on those things and it gets ugly. So it's, yeah. it's, it's just like a crazy thing. You know, um, and I'm wondering too, if there's going to be uh, like an aftermarket for 3D printed stuff coming up in, in the future when this stuff is not so available. So who, who knows on that? But that, that'll be a fun thing to speculate on. <laughs> with, um, with this, there's, there's a lot that you did with the vehicles and, and things like that. Do you have a particular favorite vehicle? that uh, you, you uh, ran across and it could be a conceptual design or it could be one that is the actual vehicle.
1: Yeah, I'll give you two. Um, And the reason I'll give you two is because one is something I can have in my collection and one is kind of not, (laughs) but uh, my favorite one uh, that you'll see in the book is the soda can racer or pop can racer, um, which is just, it's interesting to me because it's such a crazy, insane idea, like extremely clever, And sounds like super interesting until you really think through the ramifications of the whole thing as a toy. But it was basically a a racer that you would shake up a soda can, put the soda can in the back, and then you'd puncture the back. And then the idea was that the, you know, the expelling of the pressurized liquid from the can would propel the, the vehicle forward. Um, sounds like amazing, right? As a kid, who wouldn't want that? But then you think Mm -hmm. as a a toy maker and you go, who am I selling this to? The kids aren't shelling out the money. The parents are. What parent is going to want to hand over their kids something that they can puncture and spray sticky soda all over everywhere. It's like, it's a bad idea from that point of view, but like from a kid's point of view, it's the most awesome thing ever. Um, So that thing was never made. All we have is... um, some photos of the prototype exist, And then uh, the sticker sheet design uh, artwork still exists, which I have. Cool. Uh, so the original pencil marker and ink um, label designs artwork for that vehicle exists, which would have been made, um, you say, well, why are they make making label art if they never got farther than a prototype. And the reason was that they would, they would often um, make these prototypes up and take them to toy fair to pitch them to buyers from you know wherever, Target, Toys R Us. And so they'd want them to look really nice. So they would often do that label stuff fairly early um, and literally Xerox copies on paper and cut them out and tape, glue them onto the prototype. So, um so yeah i got far enough along that they were at least considering taking it to toy fair i don't know if it ever made it or not i've never seen any photos of a completed painted labeled stickered um prototype the photos i have are all sort of an unpainted version and then in the toy fair catalog is just an artist rendering of the toy so i don't know if, if if it ever got to that stage or not but if it did i would really uh that's like that's like
0: my one of my holy grail pieces. is Yeah, I can imagine. Watch, Peter Laird has it, I bet, so yeah. he's got and one he of everything, a- it seems like, so.
1: Yeah, and then the other one is the uh, beach buggy, and um, the reason there is, along with the, the stickers art for that pop can racer, we found a, a, whole, a whole bunch of sticker art for a bunch of the other vehicles, and um, I had had a uh, basically a box flat of that vehicle that I'd had for a while, which is basically a box that was never put together. Likely was a, a printer's proof meaning they they made the box to send to playmates to to check to see if everything was right. So it was never intended to be folded up and put on a toy shelf. So I had that for a while and then we came across this lot of um, these this original sticker label art. And that one was in there and it's one of the really cool ones. Um, it's got like, uh, you know, it has that toy has a flag on the back and the art has some like alternate flags that look like pants hanging on a flagpole and blowing in the wind. your shorts kind of thing or, uh, yeah <laughs> like yeah like like uh surfer shorts um and so the yeah, obviously that wasn't on the toy so it's cool to see that so I ended up um keeping that set of artwork as well so that that one kind of became and after that I bought one of the toys just to have a loose one to sort of compare the sticker concept art to the actual labels that are on the toy so that's another one of my favorites I would say
0: I'm so glad you didn't say the sewer surfing tubes, which seem to be <laughs> everywhere. It's like, I'm like, all right, it's kind of cool. But, you know, it's like, you know, just like one of those things. Yeah. Um, vehicles are a huge part of this. And, and just like the, the creativity of everything and, and from like the sewer and the Technodrome and even like the cheapskate and like the smaller ones, they, they had a great job of making things affordable for this line. Which I, I think is just part of why it's so readily available and why so many people still have it. You know, they they were shooting for that three fifty uh, price point, and I mean, the, what could you get today that is even comparable? You know, a, a regular action figure is going for twenty twenty four dollars. You know, at, at the minimum now, yeah, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And I know part of it's inflation with uh, cost of materials and stuff like that, but um, I mean, it's just there's nothing like that. You, even yeah. Star Wars figures back in the day were six ninety nine, you know that it, it's it, it's just crazy like how how available these things are. You know? Yeah, and you know Ninja Turtles was was
1: probably I mean this is somewhat of a guess, but I would argue it's pretty clear that it was probably the second highest selling uh, volume toy line ever, after probably only Star Wars. I wow. can't think of another toy line that would that would beat it because even the other super popular toy lines. I mean, maybe if you go like Transformers and you consider Transformers from you know the beginning till today, yeah, because it's so still if you look going. At Ninja Turtles from the beginning till today, you know, they've been around all through these years as well. But um, I think it'd be pretty easy to argue that you know some of the other property lines like He-Man was only around for a couple of years. You know, GI Joe was sort of in and out. And if you limit it to just the three and three quarter style figures, you know, those were a few years in the eighties. And but Ninja Turtles like. Even the just the vintage line was a full ten years worth. So if you just if you just look at the vintage, like you know the Transformers from the vintage area, and Star Wars from that era, seventies to eighties to mid nineties, you know that's what I kind of consider the the classic area of vintage toys is probably you know, seventy seven with Star Wars through about ninety five when when uh, Ninja Turtles original line ended, you know. I gotta say Ninja Trolls has to be number two in that time period. I can't see how
0: it's not. So and, and Star you know. Wars fans will buy literally anything. So it's it's just and that's not a detriment so much as like like if they make like you know this 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 the guy with the ice cream maker from Empire Strikes Back, you know, and they made a figure like you know, cause I've seen jokes of that. Like someone mm-hmm. would buy that like 100%. And then they yeah. would release a 12 inch figure of it with real human hair. And someone would buy that. It, yeah. It's just, that's, that's star Wars fandom. So I 100% agree on that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was curious about a, a couple things I know there's some some like you had mentioned Grail pieces and things like that like there's some some really low productive um, production uh, figures like a shogun Shote or the uh, Tyrannosaurus shredder and stuff like that um, did you uncover why some of these were just so short runs like a scratch or, or the uh, what was his name firehouse or yeah uh,
1: so that's just in a general so I didn't discover any specifics on any of those. And generally speaking, there usually aren't specifics. It's generally just a a general business reason for those. So um, those specific ones like the Scratch and, and the Hotspot, they were... Hotspot, that's what it was. Yeah, they were, they were late release. I think those were 94, if I recall correctly. And um, they were sort of winding down those... Um, Mutated animals that were come sort of in the basic assortments every year, and they were they were pivoting towards more just doing the four turtles in various outfits, and they were also pivoting to the mini mutants of line with those little oh, yeah. Yes. So that was the last year of those sort of like new mutated animals, you know, a cat, a dog, or whatever. After that, all you see is basically turtles and the main bad guys. You don't see new characters coming into the line. So, um, just because that was the last year of those, um, for whatever reason, the scratch was short packed, the hotspot was short packed. I know for a fact the hotspot was one to a carton because I opened a sealed carton at one point in time that had a hotspot in it and there was only one in there, and some of the other figures had two of each in there. So, just the fact that they were the assortment was for whatever reason um, they only had one on there uh, led to those being in shorter supply. I will say that Playmates was very, was very um, progressive in their SKU analysis and that they were one of the first toy companies anyway to start looking at this, the sales based on the individual SKUs and not just the case assortment.
0: Oh, so before nice. that, a
1: lot of companies were like, oh, here's the case assortment. And, you know, if you had, um, you know, whatever, two um, figures in that, two of each in that case. And everybody liked, you know, all the ones except this one. What you'd end up happening is from the company toy company perspective, it looked like, oh, that case is selling great. If you go onto the ground and look at the toy stores, you know, nine out of the ten figures are gone off the shelves and you have that last figure's a bunch of peg warmers. So um, in order to get around that, you know, Playmates was starting to look skew by skew basis, which was only really starting to become available as data in the late 80s because of UPC codes becoming prevalent and you know the scanners at the checkout becoming prevalent. So once you have that, now you can actually gather that data about, oh no, it wasn't just something from case assortment one that sold, it was, it was this actual hotspot figure that sold. So they were looking at all that data. So, and they were changing up case counts on the fly. I know that I talked to one of the operations guys and he said they would change the case counts monthly. Where if something particular skew wasn't selling very well, they'd lower that skew in the case count and add us add an extra one of a figure that was selling well. So I'm sure That's that was brilliant. going on. Yeah, I'm sure that was going on by 1994 when those figures were coming out. So they released those out there to the market and and if scratch had sold like hotcakes, I'm sure they would have adjusted the case assortment and added more of him in. But they didn't, so it must have been um you know a case of he was not only short packed to begin with, but then he didn't really sell that well anyway it was part of the line they weren't really pushing because they were trying to push all these you know all these other things the, the turtles and the various costumes you know wars forgot sewer and apollo and sewer heroes and all these things right uh, with the main characters so they kind of weren't pushing it it wasn't selling well they didn't have any reason to change the case assortment so those ended up as a short pack and you know we're only out for a year whereas like some of the figures were sold multiple years you know like in 1995 I think it was or 96 they came out with that ninja action or not um not an injection what was it called I forget but they released the, the name but I, they released a whole bunch of the older figures in, in like generic packaging that year. so a bunch of those got re-released like later on in scratch and hotspot, were not part of that re-release. So um, you're know you looking at it you're just going, man, it, those things were just available for a very short time. They were short packed. And so just literally the answer is there were less of them produced than the others.
0: That makes I mean, sense. When it comes down to demand. I mean, it's like how many demand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and now just people like them because, you know, they're interesting different characters as kids you're like oh i don't want this cat i want another leo i want another dog and
0: he wasn't he wasn't in the cartoon or the video game or anything else like that so as an adult
1: you're looking at it more like oh aesthetically this is really cool looking i really like how this figure looks or like i you know i'm in i like dogs and so i want to get a hot spot because you know i have a pet dalmatian whatever it is it (laughs) makes you like that right um Hotspot uh, so, was way
0: cooler. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> at least at least in my opinion. So who who jumps out, or is there a particular uh, line that jumped out to you as as your favorite? Like something that you thought really stood out, and you're like, this was just super awesome. Uh,
1: it was definitely the words you forgotten sewer for me, just because I've been a big Tolkien fan since I was like in fifth grade. Oh, you're in um, great company
0: then. So like
1: <laughs> <so, laughs> um, I have Sting
0: the- around here somewhere. So <laughs> yeah,
1: and and um so number one, I like that because, uh, you know, I like the sort of the medieval tie and it's, and it's, it's an interesting crossover for a Ninja Turtle line, you know, to go with like that sort of fantasy. You know, it's one thing to do, like, you know, like your typical, like, Oh, here's a policeman. Oh, here's a firefighter. Oh, here's, you know, whatever, some superheroes or something. It sort of makes sense with the line, but like fantasy is like way out there. So I like oh, yeah. this kind of cool and different and really really way far away from all the other sort of crossover stuff they did but then but then also like the history of that line and is just amazing the stuff i found um that they it was going to be very very deep line and it seemed like one that just didn't succeed very well and so it never went forward but you know in the book you'll find um several incarnations of the story in the comic book including one complete mock-up sketches of the comic book that's slightly different from what was produced you know there were characters that were never made there were figures that went all the way to sculpting all the way to photography made it into the toy catalogs one of them even made it on the back of the toy card backs like as showing as an available figure and it was never produced so um you know there's a lot of really interesting story there both from the company and from my personal journey with discovering that stuff that makes that line really interesting for me
0: i can so, i can see that absolutely you know and yeah. it's that's a concept that will be revisited you know on the later uh the 2003 2002 kind of era they would go back to that and mm-hmm. then again in the uh, 2012 cartoon and those action figures line they played off of that completely you you've got like the the mutants and mazes or whatever they were doing for that um mm-hmm. and then I don't, I don't know do you keep up with the cartoons at all um no not really
1: much i mean i've watched you know i watched like the um the what is it, the 2013 movie the, the the cartoon that came to the theaters after the original live action ones oh
0: 2007
1: one. yeah 2007 is that it okay i've seen that one I, I watched a little bit of rise um it was okay um
0: yeah it's it's just for a different yeah. audience
1: it's so yeah it's, exactly you know it's it no not really enough to but... want to go through the whole thing but um you know i keep up with the comic books pretty well i've read all the idw stuff
0: so i really like that stuff so
1: did you get a chance to watch
0: or read Last Ronin?
1: Uh, I've read all but the the last one. New new out. one's out uh today
0: as we record this, it's it's out today. So Okay. Yeah, Go. I'll probably be reading it this weekend then. Good. Yeah, it's <laughs> good. I couldn't wait, so I woke up super early to download it uh, from Comixology, and I had to, to read it, so, you know, um, yeah, it was really great. I'm, I'm excited, too, because they are releasing a figure for that, too, and, and I think one of the versions, um, the, the character was actually designed by Michael Dooney, and I think it, I don't know if it's Playmates, it might actually be a Playmates figure that they're coming out with it, so, because NECA is the one that does, like, all, most of the stuff now.
1: Yeah, you know, Playmates still releasing stuff and NECA and Super 7. Yep. And uh, what's the other? The, there's one other company that's doing some stuff. I their name there. Is it Play Arts? Um, no, not Play Arts. They, no, um, I'll remember Wait. it in a minute. It's, it's Yeah, I'll remember it. I can't think of it off the top of my head.
0: But. Those are the ones that look a little different. I just saw that Walmart had like a special on them and, and they're the ones that are like super articulated. and Yeah, like the, the green. One, yeah. yeah, I'm like... I don't know someone said they're okay but the uh to me like like NECA has had the market cornered for a while in terms of like detail but these these super seven ones man I I picked up a Bondo Gecko and it's it's like a direct translation from the original figure with better detail and articulation have you uh, have you picked any of these up
1: Uh, I've got a couple here there like I've got one of the NECA Aprils and I got one of those uh, super articulated ones that we can't remember the name of the company right now <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah,
1: but yeah i don't pick up much i mean i'm primarily focused on prototype collecting so i don't even have a whole lot of production uh vintage stuff i have some here and there but uh mostly it's uh, my personal question is all focused on the prototype stuff because that's oh, what cool. i like
0: and um and with with prototypes um so are these the uh, the hard copies are they the wax pieces like what what kind of uh, pieces do you pick up for a prototype
1: yeah and all the above <laughs> oh all of them okay so yeah, yeah. it could be like it's missing an arm copies, and these yeah. first shots you know artwork packaging design stuff packaging art you know, yeah any, anything and everything that's that is part of the the artistic process i'll call it because that's that's what really I like I like appreciating the the artistry behind these things so the closer oh, yeah. I can get to the artist it's sort of a higher level of of interest for me so you know the, the some of my favorite things are obviously the original sculpts and the original original artwork I've got um are some of the best cuz that's like It's the thing the artist actually put their tool to, put their paintbrush, their sculpting knife, right? It's like it's the thing that they actually created from nothing, a blank page or a blob of wax, right? That's the original. And, you know, the hard copy is one step away from that. It's a copy of that, but, you know, it's not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, which is what the final production toy is. So the further back towards the original artist I can get, the more sort of excited I get about a piece. So that's kind of my collecting ethos, I would say.
0: Was there anyone that surprised you that you actually got to them? Like uh, you're like, oh, I can't believe I actually got this person on the phone for your research.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there, there
0: there were definitely a couple
1: that were that were were really hard to get hold of. Um, You know, there were some that uh, you know I found out through other people I talked to. It's like, oh yeah, that person they're really super private and they don't like to talk to anybody. A couple of the sculptors actually actually were like that, and the only way I got to them was by through other their co-workers from back then that they were friendly with so i would got to be friends with one of the sculptors or one of the people at the sculpting studio and they would be like i'd be like man i'm really trying to get a hold of this guy he's like oh yeah i remember him we were good buddies like give me his number i'll call him and tell him to call you and so i would do that and then I would hook them back up like his friends, you know, from friends who haven't seen each other for 25 years. And then he would talk and then he'd be like, you should really talk to this guy. He's really, he's really great. He's nice. He's, you know, he's not trying to scam me or anything. He just (laughs) wants info for his book. And so then I would get, you know, I would get calls or emails from people I've been trying to track down. And literally people that I had sent emails to and left voice messages with that just never returned it are now suddenly returning calls because just because of the friendship they had with the other guy that I, that I was that I did get to contact. So yeah, there there were some difficult ones. Um, you know, some of them were pretty easy as well. Like Michael Dooney was very easy to get a hold of. He's out there. Everybody knows how to get a hold of him. So you know, I was able to talk to him pretty pretty readily.
0: He's um, the best. I, I've got his art right up here yeah. from when I met him, signed and all that. Like, could not say enough good things about his artwork and just a really yeah. nice guy.
1: But, if you're you listening, know,
0: Michael, you know you want to be on the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but yeah, there were some sculptors, and, and some of the Mirage guys were tough—tough tough to get a hold of them. Some of them were easy. You know, Jim Larson is—he's—he's on—he's on good he's on, uh, uh, doing conventions and stuff. And um, who's the shell artworks guy? Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. Um, you know, some of the guys—Steve Levine, you know, or yeah, Steve Levine, Steve Levine, Jim Larson—they're they're out there. You can find them. They're some of them are on Facebook, or they go to conventions easy to get a hold of, but then other ones are like really, really hard and super private and really tough to find. So, and there are still people I have that I would love to talk to that I've never been able to even locate, let alone, you know, I've located them, but they won't talk to me. There's some that I literally cannot locate at wow. all. So it's like, I don't know where this person went. There's a rumor there in Seattle. And like, you know, I've gone so far as literally sent handwritten letters to addresses I think might be them. I mean, when I can't get an email through a phone calls you know messages don't do anything i'll hand write a letter and drop it in the mail and hope that they you know might might see that and but who knows i could be i could be sending emails to somebody with the same name that's completely yeah exactly they're like
0: like no that's 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 not me yeah Yeah. (laughs) do you think um would that lead to a sequel for the book or would you do like a revision like a 2.0 or like a a director's cut or something along those lines if you're able to add to the
1: content I probably have enough content now to do a sequel already. I don't, wow. know, if I can, I don't know if I can do 400 pages worth, but I, I think I could easily do a 200 page um, second issue. So I'm kicking that around in my head. Um, so, I mean, there's been s- quite a bit of things we've found new since since the first book was published that I couldn't get in there. And there were things in the first book that I didn't have room for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a I probably have 100 pages worth of stuff that, just couldn't fit in the first first volume so i could get a lot of that stuff in and and you know some of the newer stuff i've found so uh yeah there might be someday so
0: what i about I um, it's
1: more likely than not at this point
0: but more like yeah I'm not, I, I'm not, I like but I'm that not
1: committing anything yet
0: <laughs> yeah no 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 problem yeah. at all i mean i i will definitely be looking out for a kickstarter or anything on that um what about any plans to do anything like a film documentary or anything like that? Cause I, I know there is already existing, like the, the toys that made us on Netflix and stuff like that. But when you look at the different quality of the research and the stuff, that's so rudimentary compared to what I found in the first couple pages, even of your book. So yeah. for like the people that are like really into that, you know, um, any chance of like a documentary?
1: Well, there was, there was, there's a guy that, um, Hit me up at this convention I was at that's doing this documentary and um interviewed me for that. And he I know he's interviewed some other people. Um uh so I don't remember what the title of that documentary was, but um you know I'm I'm hoping that continues forward and comes out. He he released a trailer a little while back. Um maybe if I can find that, I'll send you the info. Oh you cool. Can, you can make it add a little tag in your, you know, after after our interview saying here's the info that we couldn't remember while we were talking live, but yeah, I can, I could probably find that guy's name. He's doing a documentary. So um, I don't have any plans to do anything like that. I'm not a filmmaker. So gotcha. uh, Yeah. uh,
0: The second book would be amazing. So even um, do you think you, you will go hardcover again or like another giant uh, prestige format?
1: I think it would be the same size. I would do it. Even if it was less pages, I think I would do it the exact same. So you could, you know, put them side by side uh, on your
0: bookshelf. I, I love it and and uh, the, the cool thing too is that you actually send a sticker with a signature on it so you can um, put that inside your book. And I thought mm-hmm. that was so innovative. like I love that idea. So it's just like okay, put it where you want in there. So now I've got a signed yeah. copy of the book. And oh, that was
1: that was more of uh, honestly it's, it, it made me sound like a, a cool idea like to offer something to the customers as a sticker, but it was really out of necessity because the logistics of me, being able to physically sign the cover of each book being that the distributor distributor is not local to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, like to me to get there to physically sign them, it's almost impossible. Like I just couldn't do it. So the only way I could offer a sign- signature version was to create a sticker that I could ship the stickers to me, sign them all, ship those to the distributor and say, just, you know, drop it in each book as you, as you ship them. If they've ordered that. I,
0: I'm glad they did. I mean, yeah. So it, it worked out to well. Me is like the, the end user of it, you know, it's, that's a thing that's that's very appreciated because this is going to be something that's that's displayed this is not going to be something that it's like oh it sits underneath and there's coffee stains on it for that reason so we we actually we did an interview earlier um with uh, uh, David Wynn, who is uh, kind of Kevin Eastman's right-hand man, his tour manager and stuff like that. And I showed him the book and he's like, oh yeah, we know all about that. you know." So like they were well aware of this and yeah. they're like, yeah, that is the coolest thing. And he's like, you check out page, you know, X. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's just the coolest thing it's such a conversation starter because so many people remember fondly this line. And yeah. it's, I mean, I have like four of them on my desk right now, you know, just like at work. And, you know, you can see behind me, I've got one of the giants and, yeah, I see that. yeah. you know, it's, it genuinely makes me happy like these things. And, and um, of course, for me, it was a little bit different because I was, Man, I was six, I think, or seven, when I got my first ones, and I, I always kept them. They were the soft heads, and my uh, Michelangelo had two left legs. Never forget that. So maybe maybe that would have been worth something if if <laughs> I was a youngster and left that in the package, but uh, I did not. So <laughs> so I still have him. But yeah, I mean, just yeah. nostalgia wise and all that, it's it's such a cool thing. Do you do you think that there's another property that hits you as hard as the turtles? Like, would you do something like this for uh, Star Wars?
1: uh no of uh, not that star wars doesn't hit me as hard as the turtles but two reasons number one for star wars there's been a zillion books done like there's uh, to to the microscopic degree i mean for example there are there's a guy that's writing books on star wars just about the proof cards the packaging one book for each film <laughs> that's how like deep wow. down the red, yeah.
0: star wars books go I, yeah. And I should have, I should have anticipated that. <laughs> yeah, so,
1: so the Star Wars has been
0: done a lot. There's
1: no other line other than Star Wars I really care to do, or there's enough information on to do. But the other thing I'll say is that I, I don't think it's really possible to do a book like this again um, for any toy line. It would be very difficult to put it that way because of the fact that uh, when I started this really no one was invested in finding this type of, material for that line there have been people looking for star wars prototypes for two decades now right there's that's and that stuff has come out and it's distributed and it's all over the planet now but when i started this like nobody had gone looking for ninja turtle stuff so i was able to find massive amounts of the of the stuff because it was all still in the hands of the original creators and employees from playmates and employees of the outsource firms or whatever they, they it was all still there that's so the so fact cool. that I could gather the volume of material I could gather by visiting 30, 40 people was allowed me to make, make the book today. Like if you wanted to do a similar book for star Wars. You're talking about trying to contact three or 400 people to get this kind of material and going and visiting them and taking photographs. It'd be almost impossible to put it together. Um, so I, it was just sort of lucky right place, right time. The, and the fact that no one had really dug deep into this line that allowed all that stuff, the majority of that stuff to be held in the hands. of I mean, if I look at it, I would say probably 80% of the photos in those books probably come from about five different people. Wow. I mean, there was, there's, you know, a couple of the major sculpting studios, a couple major playmates people and like, and yeah, the, the rest of it's from, you know, a piece from this guy here, a piece from that guy there, but the vast majority of it was from about, I would say about five people. So be able to contact that few people and have that amount of volume to be able to do 400 pages. I, I don't think it will happen with any other line ever again, because every other line has been, you know, that mine has been dug and the gold is all out and spread across the world. So.
0: Wow. Um, That's great. Where, um, where's the best place that people can buy the book and um, where should I be sending them? If you're, in,
1: if you're in North America, uh, the best place is radplastic.com, my website. You'll get the, the best shipping rates there because the distributor in, in North America can ship to Canada, Mexico, pretty easy, even South America. Uh, if you're in anywhere else in the world, but mostly Europe... Um, uh, there, are, it's available through my distributor there, but they have it on several sites, bookdepository.com is one, I believe it's on Amazon UK and Amazon France. Uh, so if you're in Europe, just go to your online book resellers and try to find it because to order it from my website, it's going to cost you about like 60 bucks in shipping to get it from the U S to Europe. So you want to really try and get it through one of those channels. The European distributor is distributing it through. So it will be much cheaper, more like, you know, maybe $20 shipping, not $60 shipping. So, um,
0: yeah, those we are do the, have those a fair those. amount of listeners in uh, Australia and New Zealand. Yay. You know, but uh, <laughs> it, um, show um, yeah, also there. Book um, or? That's,
1: that's probably maybe, maybe try checking both. <laughs> you know, I'm okay. Not sure, right. Cause I mean, that's sort of almost halfway around the world from Europe and halfway around the world from the United States. It's so. worth it fellas. Yeah.
0: It's worth it. So yeah. I, I'm just saying like, if, if you have like even a, a just a, a love of this kind of stuff, it's it's, you're not going to regret it at all. Yeah.
1: I've, I've sold a few didn't like New Zealand and Australia, but yeah, the shipping is pretty expensive into that country. And um, so, and actually right now I think the U S still has the U S postal service still has a, they're not shipping. Um, uh, First class into Australia right now, so it's even more expensive to come from the U.S. So the, I'm guessing right now in Australia, your best bet is to to try to find some of those online places out of Europe to get it.
0: So, do you have any plan on releasing this as a digital like PDF file or anything like that? Or?
1: Um, probably someday. Um, you know, I really, you know, I'm an old school guy. I really like the coffee table book having something
0: I'm a hundred percent with you. So I, I just, it just popped into my head. So I figured I'd ask. Yeah.
1: But, but even saying that I know that at some point it won't be worth printing any more of them. And I don't know what that point is. I don't know if it's, if the current uh, print run that I did will be the end of it. Or if I, if it's three years from now, I'll see, think we might need another print run, but at some point, I think I'm going to decide, I don't think a print run is ever going to be worth it ever again and at that point, I still would like to have the availability for people to get one. Mm-hmm. But if if I can't if I can't reasonably offer it them in a printed book because of cost and logistics and minimum orders and all that stuff, then yeah, I would certainly want to put it out there as a digital one so that anybody who wanted one could have one. So um, I guess all that to say, it will continue to be readily available as far as I can see into the future in one way or another there, yeah, there may be gaps where I've run out of books and I don't want to order a new set for a year, but, um, uh, I'm hoping that I try, I'm going to really try hard to keep it available for, you know, the foreseeable future. Cause I think that hobby is just going to continue to grow. Um, you know, there's, there's people just from that generation just now getting into it. I mean, I run the vintage, um, Ninja Turtles book, uh, Facebook page, and I probably get a dozen or two requests a day. So, I mean, that page is just growing by, you know, three, 400 members a month, I would bet. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just going to keep growing and these new people coming to the hobby, you know, I'm hoping they might be interested in the book. So I want to continue to try to make it available as best I can. That's awesome. Uh,
0: where, where should folks follow you on social
1: media? Um, so a couple places on Instagram, uh That's F-A-W-C-E-T-T. Uh, on that I mostly post things there for my personal collection, so you'll see a lot of stuff there. On Facebook there's two places, uh, the Vintage um, t- Vintage Teenage Ninja Turtles Collectors, I think something like that. If you search Vintage and Ninja Turtles you'll find that group. Uh, I do a prototype of the day post there where I'm posting stuff that is, that is just stuff that I've found over the years. A lot of the stuff is stuff from the book, but I'll post like alternate views or the view of the back of the figure, which isn't in the book. So you'll see some different uh, things there. And then if you're really interested in actually collecting the stuff, um, there's a group I run called TMNT Prototype Collectors, which is more about you know, the, the community of actual people who want to own some of these things coming together and talking and buying and selling and that kind of stuff. So those would be the three places. You can find me on Facebook through those groups on the moderator, both of those. So if you want to send me a message there um, and then Chris at radplastic.com. So you can always reach me at that email. If you have any inquiries about the book or questions
0: you have, or if you're a distributor in Australia and one of out, let me know. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, great book. I'm, I'm about halfway through it. Um, I, I love what I've, what I've read so far, but it's, it's 400 pages can be a little daunting. So, but um, I, I That's will get through it. So yeah, it, it is. Absolutely. Well, you know, I like to stop and smell the roses. That's the whole yeah. thing. So, yeah. you know, um, and I, I truly appreciate it. So um. With, with that, folks, what we're going to do is we'll take a break and we'll be back with your pizza recipe of the day. Oh, 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 ninja oh, Turtles, oh, heroes in a hatchet. Splinter the rat taught them each the ninja arts. Donatello, master of the staff. War! Leonardo, the Katana blade. My goodness. Raphael, the Sonsworthers at Home Kids. And Michelangelo, the shackles. Radical. Uh, and Master of the Willing. He hey, who had the pepperoni and ice cream? Ninja from Playmates.
1: Hi, this is Francois Chow. I am the Shredder from Secret of the Ooze. And uh, it's been a pleasure for me to talk to Justin and Eric on Epic Tales from the
0: Sewers. It's been great, guys.
1: It's pizza time.
0: And now, in a segment that we call Pizza Time, where we discuss any Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or pizza-related food, I give you pizza time. Hey, everyone. Here's today's pizza time. Today's recipe is called Chocolate Chili Pepper Pizza with Butternut Squash. Here's your ingredients list. Two cups Cubed butternut squash, one half 1⁄2-inch pieces. 1 tablespoon plus 2 tablespoons olive oil plus more for greasing. Fine sea salt, freshly ground black pepper. 1 large yellow onion, chopped. 3 medium garlic cloves, pressed or minced. 1 to 2 chipotle chilies in adobo sauce, chopped. 2 teaspoons chili powder. 1 teaspoon ground cumin. 2 tablespoons smooth natural peanut butter. Handful of corn tortilla chips. 1 tea- teaspoon dried oregano, 1 and 3 fourths cups low-sodium chicken broth, 3 ounces unsweetened dark chocolate, chopped cornmeal, or flour for dusting, 1 pound pizza bowl doll, 1 pound ball pizza dough, homemade or store-bought, 3 quarters cup of shredded Monterey Jack cheese, 1 to 2 tablespoons finely sliced scallions, white and light green parts only, One-fourth cup sour cream. Two tablespoons crumbled queso fresco or mild feta cheese. Michelangelo is a big fan of chocolate fudge on pizza. Mole is traditionally a savory chocolate sauce from Mexico. Add the spiciness of chili pepper and the richness of butternut squash, and you get a new surprising hit. It's a no-brainer, bro. Instructions. To make the squash, preheat the oven to 400 degrees with racks in the center and bottom third positions. If you're using a baking stone or a steel pizza peel, place it on the bottom rack. 2. Dump the cubed squash onto a heavy-duty rimmed baking sheet. Toss it with one of the teaspoons of olive oil and season with salt and pepper lightly, about 1/8 teaspoon of each. 3. Roast for about 30 minutes, stirring halfway through until the sauce- squash is tender and beginning to brown. Remove the squash from the oven and set it aside to cool slightly. Then increase the oven temperature to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. To make the mole, while the squash roasts, make the chocolate, a.k.a. mole sauce. Heat the remaining two tablespoons of oil in a large skillet or a saucepan over medium-high heat. Add the onion to the pan. Give it a pinch of salt and cook, stirring frequently, until the onions begin to soften up a bit, about 3 to 5 minutes. Toss in the garlic and cook for one more minute, stirring occasionally. Step 2. Transfer the onion and garlic mixture into a blender or a food processor, along with the chipotle, chili powder, cumin, peanut butter, tortilla chips, oregano, and chicken broth puree until the mix is smooth and uniform in color. Step 3. Pour this mixture into a medium saucepan and place it over high heat. When it begins to boil, reduce the heat to medium. Cover the pan and cook for 20 to 25 minutes and let the flavors marry and intensify. Step 4. Remove the lid and stir in the chocolate until it's completely melted. Taste the sauce and add more salt and pepper if desired. Step 5. Remove the pan from heat and set it aside to cool slightly. 4. Assembly. If you're using a baking stone or pizza peel, dust the pizza peel or inverted baking sheet with cornmeal or flour. Lightly coat a heavy-duty rimmed baking sheet with olive oil. Stretch or roll the dough into a 12-inch disc and place it on the prepared pizza peel or baking sheet. Step 2. In a medium bowl, toss the roasted squash with 1 third cup of the mole sauce. Step 3. Spoon about 1 third cup of the remaining mole sauce onto the dough and spread it around evenly, leaving a 1 4 inch border around all. Step 4. Transfer the mole coated squash and dough and arrange it in a single layer, Top with jack cheese. Step 5. Shimmy the pizza from the peel onto a hot baking stone or transfer to a baking sheet in the oven. Bake for 8 to 15 minutes until the crust is golden brown. Remove the pizza from the oven and let it rest for 5 minutes. Sprinkle on the scallions. Step 8. Scoop on sour cream into a small resealable plastic bag and snip off the tip on one of the bottom corners. Step 9. Pipe the sour cream in a zigzag pattern across the pizza and sprinkle on the queso fresco, slice, and serve. Save the remaining mole sauce for dipping the pizza crust in or tortilla chips. It will keep an airtight container in the fridge for just about one week. Lighten it up, dudes. You can use whole wheat pizza dough. Use salt-free chili powder. You can make your natural peanut butter, which only contains peanuts, no extra salt, and other additives. Then you can swap the sour cream for plain, low-fat yogurt. And that is your pizza time for today. Chocolate chili pepper pizza with butternut squash. Cowabunga, dudes! Thank you for listening to the Epic Tales from the Sewers podcast. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. This podcast has no affiliation with Eastman, Laird, Mirage Studios, IDW Studios, Archie Comics, or Nickelodeon Studios. This podcast is a member of the Dorkening Podcast Network. Check out thedorkening.com for other podcasts. Epic Tales from the Sewers is recorded by Justin Cooper and Eric Will. <laughs>
1: Greetings! We are the Retro Reductopus cephala Podcast, a bi-weekly show that celebrates all the things that made growing up awesome. He's right. We wax philosophic about
0: lots of geeky crap like old video games and movies, toys, cartoons, I don't know, help me out here. Music.
1: Pants. Quoting video games that don't have
0: dialogues. Shabibans. Tasty news. Unnecessarily long Japanese onomatopoeia. Butt breathers. Uncomfortable nature facts. Or how to install a samuplan. And unlike all those other podcasts, we at Retro Octopus have an exciting rotating host schedule. Do
1: we? We sure do. So if you didn't like the guy flapping his gums this week, like me, worry not, gentle listener. Next week, we'll have a whole new host. A problem. Hey,
0: they might still suck,